fit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. So, he was imbibing very deeply of his father during those 40 days, so much so that he was able to resist Satan in a very direct frontal attack, Satan using scripture on him, and yet that scripture had a bit of a twist. He straightened Satan out and quoted other scripture that made the lie and the twist that was being given to it truly a lie. And though he did not have great power at this time physically, having fasted that long, and being very weak from a physical standpoint, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. There went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. So he began doing things immediately that caused people to perk their ears up, to begin to listen, to begin to wonder what's going on here, what's happening here. It was a, if you will, Kodak moment. It was the time. It was time for some things to start happening that had never happened before. And the kind of power and might that he would show in the next three and a half years. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now, he had done some healings. He had done some things that impressed them. And he had all their attention. glorified in all of them. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me. That's in Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. We'll go there shortly. The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. His title was the anointed, whether Messiah or Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek. He was that one anointed to do this. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. To preach the acceptable year of the eternal. So he's stating his purpose here in his ministry. What he had been commissioned to do by his father. Now we'll find when we get into Isaiah 61 that there is much, much more to this story. But he stopped in the very middle of this prophecy about that was being fulfilled in him, as we shall see here shortly. Why did he stop in the middle? We'll get to that question a little later. So he stopped right there, and he closed the book, he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were fascinated by what he had read, now, someone came in the door there and said, I have come here today to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to solve the miseries, the frustrations of people, to preach deliverance to the captives, anyone who has any kind of captivity, whether it be physical incarceration or other types of captivity. 
recovering of sight to the blind. I've just walked in the door here to cause people who cannot see to see again. To set at liberty those that are bruised, misused, abused, as we shall see a little later, slaves. Would that get our attention? Well, if somebody walked in and said that's what they came here to do, I'd be all ears. Can you really do that? Is that what you're going to do? This isn't just so much verbiage here. This, this is something the man stated out of Isaiah. Now, he just read it and sat down. And the eyes were all fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He had been anointed by his father to do a certain job. And he said, It is stated in Isaiah 61, And I am here to do it. This scripture is being fulfilled in your ears this very day. Wow. I think you would pay attention. That isn't what you got in the synagogue every day, was it? No? Not to this point. And all bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Those are pretty nice words to hear. I'm going to heal the blind. I'm going to heal the deaf. I'm going to take away all troubles, cares, frustrations, and difficulties. Now, is that what he did? What about the ministry he had for the next three and a half years after making this statement? I think it's very obvious the Spirit of the Eternal was upon him, that he truly had been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. He healed a lot of broken-hearted people, made their lives better. He preached deliverance to the captives, didn't he? He healed people's eyes so that they were no longer blind but could see. Even a child who's been blind from birth was completely healed and could see as well as anyone here. So he did those things, didn't he? It wasn't just a vain boast. It wasn't some nut that walked through the door and said, I'm going to do this and then couldn't deliver. Here was someone who actually did what he said he would do. Pretty important. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Now, since that fulfilled a scripture back in Isaiah 61. I think we should go back there and examine it a little closer. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. I might, before I start reading there, do a little review here. It hasn't been too long since we went through the book of Isaiah. But here he's beginning to talk about Millennial things, uh, about things in the kingdom of God that will happen. Chapter 60, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the eternal is risen upon you. And he says in verse 10, In my wrath I smote you, but in my favor have I had mercy on you. Uh, verse 12, The nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Will this world listen? to the witness at the end by the two and perhaps others? No. What will happen to them? They'll be destroyed. The sons also of them that afflicted you, verse 14, shall come bending to you, and all they that despise you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet, 
And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, and whereby you have been forsaken and hated, so that man, no man went through you, or came through you, or spoke through you, looked to you. I will make you an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations, and so on. Be called, in verse 21, the branch of my planting. All right, so that's the context leading up to Isaiah 61. Let's go there now. The Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, or the slaves, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Eternal. There he stopped. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. I think you see then a clue why he stopped where he did. He came to proclaim an acceptable year. We'll get to that in a moment. But he stopped short of saying, and the day of vengeance of our God. His earthly ministry stopped short of the vengeance of God. Now the prophecy in Isaiah 61 goes way beyond that. But he was limited in the scope of what he was sent here to do the first time. So he was very, very aware of that and knew how far he would take his three and a half year ministry and where it would stop. So he only quoted that far. Now we are approximately 2,000 years later, almost. And we are very near the day of the vengeance of our God. It isn't very far off. In fact, we see the storm clouds gathering around the world now in the news daily. It isn't something that's way off. It's something that we see on the news every day that goes by. I can remember in my life looking for clues of how these things would come to pass. And sometimes having difficulty finding them all because there wasn't much on the stage yet. But now they've moved all kinds of props out, and the stage is almost finished and ready for the opening act. Things are moving very, very rapidly in this world today toward the fulfilling of many, many prophecies. And the day of the vengeance of our God is very, very near. So that should get our attention right here. He only took it that far at that time. This was for a later time. And therefore, since we are very, very near the time of the vengeance of the eternal, now is the time we need to be paying great attention to this. The first part of his message and the last part of his message. Now, we are a people, much as those people were in his day, who also are blind and deaf and sick and tired and frustrated and have all kinds of chains and bonds upon us from the world around us, from Satan the devil, and in the near future, some of us will be in physical chains and bonds and physically in captive. It is a spiritual thing to a great degree today, but it will become physical very shortly. So the vengeance of our God is part of it. But Isaiah was giving a much broader prophecy with a far greater scope than what Christ was willing to quote in terms of his physical ministry on the earth. So the vengeance of God is coming, 
and also to comfort all those that mourn. Now, we recently went through in the Standard of God for Us series that those who mourn over their spiritual condition will be comforted. So, part of what is about to happen will be something that leads to the comfort of those who mourn. To appoint to them that mourn in Zion, that's the church, to give to them beauty for ashes, instead of ashes of a burned up life, beauty. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they might be called trees of righteousness, says he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness in Isaiah 41, 19. Seven women, seven churches will be planted, the remnant of them, in the wilderness. We know that story. They'll be called the plantings of the eternal. Isaiah 54, the last verse, says that their righteousness will be of him, not their own. Our self-righteousness doesn't do us a bit of good. The plantings of the eternal, that he might be glorified. Verse 4, they'll repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Verse 6, you'll be named the priests of the eternal. What does it say in Revelation 5.10? We'll be kings and priests in his kingdom. So, Isaiah 61 is leading up to the kingdom of God on earth. I think that should be quite obvious without going into this too deeply. Verse 10 down there, though, it says, you'll be, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So this was a time that's leading up to Christ marrying his bride. That's the context of Isaiah 61, once you get past that part which he was fulfilled specifically that day. And again, he goes on to say that in the day of the vengeance of God, he will also bring about wonderful things for those who are alive at that time, who will, as a result, be ushered into the kingdom of God. Now, what is this talking about? If you do a word study of a part of this to proclaim liberty to the captives, it narrows down very rapidly to a particular thing. If you look up the word jubilee, it adds up very quickly to one particular item. Verse 2 of 61, as is stated in Luke 4, says to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal. So he's tying together a specific year with all these blessings that were to come at that time and will again come associated with the day of the vengeance of the eternal. In my margin here, it refers you back to Leviticus 25, because that's the only place you can go. It's like Zechariah 4, when it talks about the anointed ones there, and the only other place the two anointed ones are mentioned is in Revelation 11. So it shows you very clearly the Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4 talking about the same events, the same people, and so on, because that's the only places they're mentioned. Well, the same is true of this subject that we're about to address today. And that is 
there is only one particular year, which is recurring, which is the, the acceptable day or year, excuse me, of the eternal. Now, this will have wide-reaching ramifications. Let's go back to Leviticus 25. I want to start here because it lays out something about the year of Jubilee. And from there we will go to some other scriptures uh, which address the same day. And in fact, everywhere you go that talks about liberty, unless someone is just set out of jail, but every place that it talks about a general sense of liberty or freedom from captivity, I think the reference is back to the Jubilee year, Old Testament and New Testament. The Eternal spoke to Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the Eternal. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year you shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the Eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, that which grows of its own accord of the harvest you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of your vine that has not been pruned, for it is a year of rest to the land. Now we have read this over the decades in the church of God, and we sort of kept it in principle. Each farmer would hopefully rest his land every seven years, it was looked upon as a physical principle, however, whereby you could rotate your crop, and as long as you let each piece of land rest once out of every seven, you were in compliance because it was just a physical thing, we thought. And we'll get into tithing here. Uh, it's part of the subject, uh, with third tithe particularly. And everybody just kept third tithe based on the time of his conversion or the nearest Feast of Tabernacles or Passover uh, to his baptism. It was generally the way it was put in the church for all those decades. That was done because it was stated and alleged that we don't know when the year of Jubilee is. And the reason given that we don't know when the year of Jubilee is, is that then we would know when Christ will return, at least to the year, because it would seem that he would come at the Jubilee, the year of release, the time when the captives are released, healings occur, the kingdom of God begins, and so on. But since one scripture says you won't know the day or the hour, it was thought you couldn't know the year, and therefore, uh, God had hidden this from us as to when the Jubilees would be. And I accepted that and thought, okay, we'll just sort of keep this as a physical principle. On the other hand, maybe there's more to it. Could there be something deeper, something we're missing? Is it possible, maybe, to establish the Jubilee? Now, even if we do establish what year the next Jubilee is to be, does that necessarily mean that Christ would return that year? I think not. It says he's going to cut this end time short, lest no flesh be saved alive. 
So even that, though that would logically be the year he would return and begin to truly release the whole world, he'll cut it short because no one would be alive if he didn't. So even if we can establish that, it doesn't necessarily mean we've established when Christ will return. That is not the point that I am working on today. Where I am going with this is that God, and we will see that as we go through this, but I'll, I'll state it a little ahead of time so that it might make more sense to you as we go through it, that the Jubilee year is the kingpin for the stability of a people. It is the economic basis to keep the poor from being poor. It is a check and balance in society that keeps slavery away, that solves all kinds of problems. Now, there are some elements of the way that it was laid out that will accomplish that. Now, we have a society today and a world economic system that is contingent upon central bankers who can create money out of thin air. It doesn't have to be based on gold or silver or any particular system, except that if they want money, they just plug it into a computer and send it to you, and your bank recognizes it and says, you have this much money. They can print it, and it's what they call fiat money. It's worthless, except for the confidence that people might have that they could purchase something with it. And when that confidence goes away, it's worthless. It's just a little piece of paper that has no intrinsic value, whatever. God created an economic system that would work and continue to work. Our economic system in this country has worked fairly well for a while, but its death was found in its birth because it is a false system that will not continue to work. It is controlled by interest rates and inflation. The printing of more and more money, which makes it worth less and less. So that the buying power of the dollar and any other currency that is on this system eventually becomes worthless. It took a trillion dollars in the Third Reich to buy a loaf of bread at one point. Trillion Deutschmarks. You know, they had to be printed that big and in big denominations to even have that many. And it took a wheelbarrow full to buy a loaf of bread. That is exactly where the economies of Israel, the United States, if you will, today are headed. It's where we'll be very shortly. Because they just keep printing more and more and more. And now we are trillions of dollars in debt, and we have mortgaged ourselves to other countries, and all they have to do is withdraw their support of the dollar, and it will be worthless, and they will say, their money's no good, so all we can do is go in and take their country. It's just like the mortgage company coming and taking your house. Only this time they'll take our country, because our dollar will be worth nothing. Now, God had a system which prevented that. That system has fallen into disuse in Israel today. 
and is not being used, and we are far, far, far away. Now, we have established a community on a physical piece of land, and I think we are in a perfect position to reinstitute what God gave back here as the financial system for Israel. And it will work. And there are a lot of promises that I believe are contingent upon us doing this and doing it right. We'll see those more as we go through. And there are cursings that are associated without doing this. We'll see those too. I want to present it to you, let you think about it, study on it, and then maybe we'll talk some more. But let's lay it out here. So this discussion of what is going to turn shortly into a dissertation on the Jubilee uh, begins with six years plant, seventh year, rest your land. And this builds for the 50th year, as we'll see here in a moment. All right, where did we leave off here in Leviticus 25? Verse 6, The Sabbath of the eternal of the land shall be food for you, for you and for your servant, and for your maid, for your hired servant, and for the stranger that sojourns with you. In other words, this is to include everyone in your society. It's a physical nation. And for your cattle, and for your beasts that are in your land, shall all the increase thereof be food. And you shall number seven Sabbaths of years to you, seven times seven years, and the space of the seventh seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. That makes it quite plain. Seven times seven is forty-nine. So you have a cycle here, seven years, seven times, to a total of forty-nine. Then shall you cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, and the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. So the jubilee year was to be announced at atonement. Every fifty years, this announcement was to be made. Why on the day of atonement? Well, piece of trumpets pictures are changed to spirit, atonement, pictures marriage to the Lamb and being totally at one with Him. And from that point on, being happily married with no tears, no sorrow, no pain, no misery, nothing bad ever to happen again. Never to, for our eyes to grow old or our ears, never to have any maladies, no discomforts, no depression, no frustration in the sense of human frustrations we've experienced. From that moment on, I think that's why it was announced on atonement, plus the fact that Satan the devil would be bound at that time as well, and no longer able to bring us into the captivity of sin and death. For us, that would be something of the past. So true liberty can only be achieved when our human nature has been changed and Satan has been bound. Then we no longer have those two things pulling us down that lead to sorrow and tears, frustration and pain. So the Jubilee was the acceptable year that freedom would come. We'll see in the definition here as we go on through what that means. So on the Day of Atonement, 
announcing the year of Jubilee, which was to commence the next spring. He announced it at atonement, but the year begins uh, in Abib when they came out of Egypt and has ever since. So it's announced ahead of time, and then it is followed through on. Verse 10, And you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. And to all the inhabitants thereof, it shall be a jubilee to you. And you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. The family's gotten scattered. If they've lost their land that had been given at them, to them when they went into the land of Canaan to their family, it was to be returned to them. So you could only be landless and poor for a maximum of 50 years. As long as you could be that way. Because when that jubilee started, land was returned to original owners. You couldn't really, in that sense, as we would understand it today, buy land. You could only lease it for 49 years. Well, if you start at the beginning of the jubilee year, I suppose you could lease it for 50 years. But the next jubilee, it went back. You, you couldn't buy land and then keep it from people in terminally. It would always go back to them. Fresh chance for every family, every 50 years. That's beautiful, isn't it? Some people get downtrodden. Uh, they, they lose the family farm, if you will. And then they have to go work somewhere barely making a living because they're not trained to do anything else. And it's gone forevermore. I knew a family I've talked to you about before who had a farm, ranch actually, beautiful place in Montana, hundreds and hundreds of acres, mountains on it, trees and elk and deer and cattle and grass everywhere, could raise their own hay, had their own home, home for mama, grandmother, started gambling down in Nevada. They lost the whole thing. Now it's lost forever to their children. I knew some of their children. They'll never get that land back. Their children will never see that land again. Maybe they'll drive by and say, our family used to own that ranch. Gone now. Under God's system, if you had a fool in charge of the land, the children would get it back. Anything more beautiful than that? Now, the fool might go through the rest of the Jubilee years penniless, but his children would not lose that inheritance that was given to their family when the land was divided. Verse 11, A Jubilee shall that fiftieth year be to you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of your vine undressed or unpruned, for it is the jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. I've been in the church over 50 years now myself, associated with it, not baptized, but I've never experienced a jubilee because we didn't keep them. What does the word jubilee mean? Where did it come from? Or I, I guess, what does jubilant mean? It came from jubilee. It means rejoicing, free, happy, at liberty, a new lease on life, if you will. Now, conversion, in a way, gives you that, but there's more to it, and we will see as we go on through. It's a holy time. It's a special time. It's a time of jubilation and rejoicing. 
What if somebody walked up to you and said, you know, your granddad had a 2,000 acre ranch and he lost it, but we've searched the records and looks like you're the heir. Here's the deed. Go take your ranch. Hot diggity dog. That would be a cause for jubilation, wouldn't it? Inherit something like that? Return every man to his possession. Verse 14, If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy anything of your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. So this gets down to what the Law and the Prophets hang on, doesn't it? Love everyone as you would love yourself. Treat each other as you would want to be treated. So the Law of Liberty is based on those two commandments, the two great commandments that Christ talked about. Verse 15, according to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy of your neighbor, and according to the number of years of the fruits, he shall sell to you. So, if it's ten years after the jubilee and you've got thirty-nine left, uh, you base the land lease or sale on how many years there are to the jubilee. You're not going to pay for fifty years use and you're only going to get thirty-nine years use out of it. Or Let's say it's five years before the jubilee. You've got to adjust the price or the rent or lease on that land based on how long you will have it because you know good and well it's going away five years later. Verse 16, according to the multitude of years, you shall increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of years, you shall diminish the price of it. For according to the number of the years of the fruits, does he sell it to you. You shall not therefore oppress one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the eternal your God. So the Jubilee system should teach us to fear God. To stand in awe of the financial and economic system and plan that he set up that would ensure the even distribution of wealth. You see, what's happening in America is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And this is a cycle that has been established by our economic system and our fiat dollar, and it will get worse and worse until there are only the rich and the slaves. And we're very near that now. You can barely, with two people working, provide a living for your family. They've seen to it. Unless you have a very good job. That's the wrong system. Verse 18, Wherefore you shall do my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and you shall dwell in the land in safety. Already starts giving some promises here. If you'll do this, you'll have safety. The land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. You'll have plenty to eat, and you'll be safe. If you'll do what God is commanding us right here in Leviticus 25. Now those are two of the things that are very important to us, aren't they? We want to eat. And we want to feel safe when we lay down at night to sleep. And if you shall say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow. We won't gather in our increase. What are we going to do? <laughs> we're Israelites. God knows what question we're going to ask. They'd just gone through and got on the other side of the Red Sea. Incredible miracle. Wall of fire around them. Egyptians coming, the sea parts, they walk through, the sea closes, and the Egyptians are all dead. 
Well, why do we got to eat and drink? It didn't take long, did it? So God says, all right, before you ever even get there, if you shall say, what are we going to do? Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. If we set ourselves to do this, what does it also require? It requires faith. Faith that God will do what He says He will do. How many farmers do you know or think that you could go through the Midwest and find that would say, if you ask them, why don't you just rest all your land every seventh year and sit and drink coffee? How many takers are you going to find? Not very many. I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. Now, that's almost beyond our capacity to believe, isn't it? That that garden that's only producing enough to barely make it maybe through this year would produce enough suddenly for three years. And you shall sow the eighth year and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, you shall eat of the old store. So if you don't plant the seventh year... You do plant the eighth year, it takes to the end of the eighth year for that harvest to be complete enough. So you've gone from the end of the sixth year to the ninth year without having a harvest. That's a long time. Do we walk by faith or by sight? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Now, in one sense, it doesn't take faith. It takes faith in the system, but you see, you get your three years' worth of crop before you ever don't plant. So that part isn't by faith. It's the coming up to it and believing it and being willing to do it, whereby God answers by giving you three years' crop in one year. Now, there are farmers who would say, I'll go for that. But they wouldn't like the system. It's like people want blessings from God, but they don't like what you have to do to receive those blessings from God. Well, we'll see what is required of us to receive this kind of blessing from God. Verse 23, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. What is America doing today? We're selling our land, our infrastructure, to Chinese, to Arabs, to Germans, to Italians, to Brazilians. Anybody who wants to buy it, we sell it to them. We're even starting to sell and have sold some of our toll roads. We're starting to sell our freeways and bridges. We are selling our water systems for our cities. Many of them are owned by people in Germany. City of Chicago, water-owned, such-and-such company in Germany that sound wise to you? The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land. Somebody loses their land, 
They have a redemption possibility. It isn't lost and gone forever. There's redemption available. If your brother be waxed poor and has sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. So if you've got a stupid, foolish brother, and he sells part of the farm from the family, then his brother can come and redeem it. What would happen today if a stupid brother sold the family farm? And another brother came and said, Hey, my brother sold you the family farm. Family still wants it. He was stupid. The guy would say, Too bad. He sold it. I got the deed right here. You can't have it. Mine now. You go home without, don't you? God won't let that happen under his system. A fool, one fool in the family, doesn't mean the whole family has to eat the fruit of the fool. Poverty. And if the man have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof, and restore the overplus, or the surplus, or the profit, to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the, land, in the hand of him that has bought it until the year of Jubilee. So let's say you, the fool sold the family farm. I can't get it back. Don't have the money to do it. But there's still a safety net. The year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall go out and he shall return to his possession. And if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, it's interesting we put a 49-year lease on our property, isn't it? So you have homes there and, and land there. I thought about a 99-year lease, and it was more or less like a sale, but we settled on 49 years. When we established the Jubilee, it may not quite coincide with that, but it, it was the right principle, I think. All right, go to verse 29. And if a man sell a dwelling house in a wall city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year may he redeem it. So here's something different than farmland. This is a house in a wall city. And if it be not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the wall city shall be established forever to him that bought it throughout his generations. It shall not go out in the jubilee. See, the land is where you farmed. It's where you planted food and raised animals, and therefore uh, created a living and created wealth for the family. A house in town does not necessarily do that. So even with a house in town, if you sold it and all the papers were signed, you could go back up to a full year and buy it back. The United States, I think, gives you three days to go back and undo a contract at a full year under God's system. But on the house, the years all you had, it would not go out in Jubilee. But the houses of the villages which have no wall round about them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall go out in the Jubilee. So farmhouses were different than townhouses. Notwithstanding the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possession, may the Levites redeem at any time. So the Levite's house, even if we're in the city, he could redeem at any time. But the field of the suburbs of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. And if your brother be waxed poor and fallen in decay with you, I don't know whether that means he's 
misused and his financial situation is decayed or whether the relationship is decayed. It may mean that. Then you shall relieve him. Yes, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Well, God says, take in those who are in need. Take you no usury of him or increase, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. So, we're not to charge interest to a brother or to take increase, in a, in a sense, profit in a wrong way. I am the eternal your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. I think it's interesting that he gave us the land we have right now, right at the base of the Canaan mountains. Another coincidence, I'm sure. I'm sure not. And if your brother that dwells by you be waxed poor and be sold to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a bondservant. Sometimes people got so poor, they just had to sell themselves to someone else to work and have food. But you're not to make a bond servant of them. But as a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall serve, shall be with you and shall serve you to the year of Jubilee. And if he had been poor and had to indenture himself as a slave, then he was released at the end of 50 years. And then shall he depart from you, both he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family, and to the possession of his father shall he return. So he's been down and out from 49 to one year, or whatever. And he gets a reprieve. He gets a new lease on life. And his children get a new lease on life. They're to go with him back to the original land of their fathers. Isn't this a beautiful system? Doesn't this work great? If someone would do it? Uh, let's see, verse 42. For they are my servants which I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondmen. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but shall fear your God. Both your bondmen and your bondmaids, which you shall have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you. Of them shall you buy bondmen and bondmaids. Well, says, if you want some slaves, go buy the heathen around you. Don't make Israelite slaves. Even if they're poor, Treat them as hired servants and turn them loose at the end of the Jubilee. Uh, verse 46, And you shall take them as inheritance for your children after you to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondmen forever. That's the heathen that you take as slaves. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule one over another with rigor. And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by you, and your brother that dwells by him wax poor and sell himself to the stranger or sojourner by you or to the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. So your family could get you out of pock, pay off your debts if they had to, and restore your freedom to you. Either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is near of kin to him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be able, he may redeem himself. He finds a way to pay off the debt that he owes. And he shall reckon with him that bought him from the year that he was sold to him to the, price, to the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall be according to the number of years, according to the time of a hired servant, shall it be with him. So there was a price put on a year's labor. And you would work commensurately. If there be yet many years behind, according to them, he shall give again the price of his redemption out of the money that he was bought for. 
And if there remain but few years to the year of Jubilee, then he shall count with him, and according to his years shall he give him again the price of his redemption. And as a yearly hired servant shall he be with him, and the others shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. You can't mistreat somebody even though they are in a downtrodden situation. What do people do today? Have you ever worked for Oni? Remember the old song about the guy that had a problem with his foreman? One of these days when he retired, he was going to whoop up on Oni. Uh, I don't remember the whole song, but uh, it was the oppressed feeling that the employee had. And his frustrations were coming out in that song. We're not to frustrate people. We're to work with them as people, as the children of God, not as slaves. So we need to be very careful with anyone we hire, that we treat them with respect, love, generosity, kindness. Let's see. Verse 54, And if he be not redeemed in these years, then he shall go out in the year of Jubilee, both he and his children with him. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Eternal, your God. Now, we are spiritual Israel today, that he is called out of this world, this Egypt and Babylon around us. And he wants us to treat each other with respect, with love. Now, let's see. I want to skip forward here into 26 a little bit. Uh, there's a principle here. Um, verse 20, your strength shall be spent in vain if you don't follow what God says. Uh, and your, For your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. And if you walk contrary to me and will not hearken to me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Now, this is attached to chapter 25. We have a seven-year land Sabbath. If you don't keep it, he's implying, then you're going to have all kinds of problems. And you'll wind up even in verse 29, eating the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. That means that God will put the whole land into abject poverty and cursing if they did not follow his system. Verse 33, And I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you be in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. So he ties this directly to the Jubilee system here. That cursings will come if this is not followed. Now, where is America today? We have not followed through with God, what God laid out here in this old covenant. And the America is still under the terms of the old covenant because the new covenant has not been offered to this nation, only to a few called out once. And because the land has been forced, chemicals have been used on it, it has not been allowed to rest. Now we are going into droughts. Sixty percent of the nation this day, today, is in drought. The crops across the country are beginning to fail. Australia's crops are failing. Europe has topsy-turvy weather. Israel is headed down the tubes because we have not done what God said to do here. But he says, your land will enjoy its Sabbaths because I'll take you out of there and you can't force the land on the seventh year. 
Well, this is coming on us because of not having kept the land Sabbaths and then, as part of the system, the Jubilee. We have in this land sales of land. We do not have leases that last up to 50 years. Let's go to Jeremiah 34 because it echoes this. Jeremiah is very, very much an end-time prophecy. This isn't just something way back in ancient Israel. This is something that is brought forward by Jeremiah because it is for the end. Go to Jeremiah 34. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth, of his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities thereof, saying... So it's the time that Israel was going into captivity, and we are right on the precipice of that today in our own land. So it's very timely. Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape out of his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. And your eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon, and he shall speak with you mouth to mouth, and you shall go to Babylon. He talks about the captivity. Let's go down to verse 8. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal. After that the king Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them. So Zedekiah the king had proclaimed the jubilee to the people of Israel. Wow, maybe that hadn't been done in a while. So it was proclaimed. Now when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone his maidservant go free that none should serve themselves of them any more, then they obeyed and let them go. That proves that proclaiming liberty in verse 8 is speaking of the Jubilee, because those are the things you did at the Jubilee. But what happened? Verse 11. Afterward they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into subjection for servants and for handmaids. Now that's just exactly what Egypt did. Egypt said, get out of here. Go away, lest we all be dead men. Get out of our land. Don't delay. We'll kill you if you stay. And then looked around and said, who's going to bring me my coffee this morning? So they got their army all rounded up and headed out across the desert to bring the Israelites back. I'm not going to build my own house. Where'd those guys go? They were making bricks here yesterday. Let's go get them. Israel's just as carnal, just as rotten as the Egyptians were. The king had declared a jubilee. Everybody said, oh, okay, this is happy, happy. We'll have jubilee. All you servants leave. Go away. We'll take care of things around here. And they looked around and said, hey, this isn't much fun. I've got to clean my own house. And they went out and collared their servants and brought them back. Just like the Egyptians tried to do. Now, I imagine this pleased God, don't you? Declare a jubilee and say, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. Hey, hey, that's a mistake. Verse 12, Therefore the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, saying, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, 
I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen, saying, At the end of seven years, let you go every man his brother in Hebrew, which has been sold to you. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers hearken not to me, neither incline their ears. They just didn't do it. And you were now turned and had done right in my sight in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor. And you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. They had gone to the temple or the tabernacle of God and proclaimed a year of jubilee, turned their servants loose, and then reneged on their promise. Ooh. But you turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure, jubilation, liberty, to return and brought them into subjection to be to you for servants and for handmaids. Now what's God going to do? He's going to say, but it's okay, you're under grace. I forgive you. Therefore, Thus says the Eternal, you have not hearkened to me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother, every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you. Well, that's not what you thought I'd read, is it? Well, what kind of liberty did he proclaim? Says the Eternal, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they have made before me, when they cut the, half, the calf in two and pass between the parts thereof. Now, Abraham's sacrifice and covenant with God. What do we call America? The land of liberty. Home of the free. Home of the brave. We promised liberty when the slave nation was established. We had liberty nickels. Liberty everywhere. Freedom from the king's oppression. Freedom to all people that they might live and prosper. And it would become an American dream. How much liberty do we have today? Our government has been taking our liberties away. Removing our freedoms. Patriot Act took away most of the rest of them. just hasn't all been enacted yet. We've become slaves to corporations. Slaves to big business. They pay us what they want us to have. They charge us taxes at whatever rate they decide upon. 30, 40 percent. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what God said would be the law of the land and the taxation of the land. Man has upped it. 30, 40, 50%. So we become slaves to the system. What's God going to do to us? Ezekiel 5. Third will die of famine and pestilence. Third die by the sword. And a third be taken into captivity. And most will die there. What's about to happen to our country? We proclaim liberty. And then we put a stubborn, onerous, wrong system in place that has taken the liberty away. And this is no longer the land of liberty. The princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, verse 19, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land which pass between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of them that seek their life. 
and their dead bodies shall be for meat to the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes will I give to the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of them that seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which are gone up from you. Behold, I will command, says the Eternal, and cause, us, and cause them to return to this city, and they shall fight against it, and take it, and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. When you proclaim liberty and withdraw it, that's God's attitude about it. That's what he's about to do to this nation. He then gives a very touching and powerful example of the Rechabites, whose father told them, don't you ever drink wine again all your days, verse 8. And they didn't. You know, there, there could have come a time when the children of Rechab could have said, Oh, Dad was nuts. I want a glass of wine. But when they agreed with their father never to drink it again, through the generations, they maintained that. Now, when we vow to do something that our Father in Heaven tells us, and we renege on it, we're not like the Rechabites. God said there would never be a time when there would not be a, Rechab, a, a, a son of Rechab to stand before him forever. Somewhere today in the church, I'd bet you money. I might lose the farm that way. But I am assured that somewhere among God's people, wherever he may be, there is a son of Rechab. Has to be. That's how much God honored people who kept their promise and did what they said they'd do. Might have been a stupid promise to make. Might have been a stupid thing to ask. But they did it. Now we, having been given a beautiful financial system from God, have rejected it, turned it aside, and God says most of us are going to die as a result in deep poverty with nothing to eat. Famine, pestilence, the sword, and captivity. We promised liberty. We created enslavement. And God's going to kill us for it. That's the way it's going to be as a nation. This is a prophecy, and it's an indictment against those who would not allow liberty and create liberty. All right, let's go to Psalm 119. What time is it getting to be? We've got a little bit of time here. We're not going to finish this subject, obviously, today. I want to examine the places where it talks about the subject of liberty and see if there's not a tie-in. Psalm 119. And here I'm down about verse 145. At least I thought I was. No, it doesn't look right. Did I write that down wrong? I cried with my whole heart, Hear me, O eternal, I will keep your statutes. I must have written that down wrong. Did someone's eye fall on it? 45, is it? Good, good thing somebody's awake. Yeah, verse 45. Uh, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. 
Now, what had Israel done there with Zedekiah? They had ignored the precepts of God, and they were going to be taken into slavery as a result. Well, David said, I will keep your precepts, and I will walk in liberty. So this whole thing of liberty and freedom and jubilee has to do with keeping the precepts of God. The jubilee is one of those precepts. Now let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 20. For the creature, or the creation, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who is subjected the same in hope, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the, the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. We are going to be freed from slavery. Remember Isaiah 61 now, where he said all the things that he would do, and then he would have the vengeance of the eternal, and then he would turn ashes into beauty, and all of those things that he said would turn to good that had been bad. Now we, through conversion and the receipt of God's Holy Spirit, uh, begin to imbibe of his blessings in a limited way. But it's going to turn soon into an unlimited way. But we've been living in a world that is under the bondage of corruption and will be given glorious liberty of the children of God. The rest of the world has got to die. But we have been offered liberty. Then the right kind of liberty. We'll go on and see. So deliverance comes through doing the things that God says. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. What did I, oh, 2 Corinthians. Yeah, that is 2 Corinthians. I goofed another one up. Huh? Second Corinthians. Oh, I was in, I was reading in two. Oh well. Now the eternal is that spirit, and where the spirit of the eternal is, there is liberty. Behold, we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the eternal, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the eternal. How do we achieve liberty? Isaiah 61 says we'll be made kings, we'll be made priests, we'll be given the kind of life that does not have the chains of bondage that this human existence has laid upon us. So he's equating here the spiritual walk and the ultimate change into spirit as part of the liberty that comes through obeying the precepts and the ways of God. Through the Spirit of God comes liberty. Wouldn't it be nice to be freedom from, free from a guilty conscience, from frustration, from depression, from even repentance? When we mess up, we have to go to God and humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness and mercy and 
please don't hold this on me, and then we hold our breath and hope that we're forgiven instead of blotted out. And we do that frequently in life, don't we? Wouldn't it be nice to be free from that? Wouldn't Paul have liked to have gone and been through death in the next split second of consciousness with Christ rather than have to live on this earth going through what he was going through? You know, he was getting tired of being stoned and beat and thrown in prison and floating around the Mediterranean. And he was tired of having to hear stories of people who were committing adultery and fornication and incest and doing all kinds of wrong things. He got tired of that. And he got tired of himself. He said, man, things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. I'm so frustrated. Who can deliver me from this body of sin and death? He didn't feel the kind of liberty and freedom that the Protestants feel today, where you're once saved, always saved, and the grace of God just automatically covers your sin, and therefore you have no problem. Now, Paul wrote more about grace than anybody else. So why didn't he feel like, hey, I'm under grace, I'm at liberty, I'm free, I can just do anything I want, and I'm forgiven by right immediately, and no problem, baby. No, not the way he looked at it. He may have written some things that's hard for some people to understand about grace, but he understood that when he sinned, he had a problem, and he had to repent, and he had to ask forgiveness. That's bottom line. But he was still in the chains of human nature and carnality, even though he was working at walking by the Spirit. So when we have troubles and difficulties, we've got to realize we're in the same boat Paul was in. Galatians 2. Here he talks in Galatians some things that Peter scratched his head over and said this is hard to understand, but it's true, if you understand it. It's true whether you don't understand it or not, or do understand it. It's still true, you just don't understand it. See what I mean about Peter having trouble with Paul? He probably had trouble with Daryl. Galatians 10. I'm not near as smart as Paul was. Galatians 2, all right, verse 4, And the because of false brethren, unaware, brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. There are people out there that will take advantage of us if there's any way they can. We had some people that came into the church some 20 years ago. Well, they came in before that, but they took over in about 20 years ago. Boy, did they create problems. They took away the freedom and liberty. See, they promised a false freedom and liberty. They took away the true relationship with God and gave us a Protestant, false, grace-only based religion. Look where they are today. God is going to continue to scatter them he is going to turn them into our enemies, as Daniel 11 says, that they will have communication with the beast. They will turn in our names and addresses, I believe, and cause us to be killed if they can. Because they think we are bound by a law that is onerous. No, God's is the law of liberty. 
It frees us from guilt, from pain, from death through the sacrifice of our Lord. Through His blood, we don't have to have our blood shed. It's that simple. So, we can have forgiveness and walk on. Those people cannot receive forgiveness because they have begun to worship a false god who cannot do that. And they will be taken captive and killed, ultimately, along with the rest of the world. Bad situation. This is all tied to the Jubilee. Galatians 5. Here I want verses 1 through 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you, go, if you feel you have to go through physical circumcision, he says, Christ profits you nothing. That's a zero amount, nothing. If you come under the ceremonial things, then the sacrifice of Christ means nothing to you. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Now, he tells us in Hebrews 9 that those ceremonial things are not necessary to be done physically anymore. That's the whole law he's talking about here, not the Ten Commandments by any means, because he makes it very clear that the Ten Commandments are still very much in effect, and even those ordinances are in a spiritual sense, but not a physical one. Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. If you expect carnal washings and ordinances and ceremonies from the past to save you, they can't. Because you break the law, and the penalty of breaking the law is death. And if you're going to depend upon those things for salvation, it won't do you any good. Circumcision, or some of the other ceremonies that were done, are not what are important. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Notice verse 13. For brethren, you have been called to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Now, what did the year of Jubilee and the land Sabbath and that whole system guarantee? It guaranteed that you would not bite and devour one another. You would not charge interest. You would not take advantage of one another. And if you did, the Jubilee would free them from you. So, God has set up a system for physical people that will guarantee liberty and prosperity if followed. Just as we have a spiritual system that also guarantees spiritual liberty, freedom, and removal from guilt and the bondage of sin. It's a beautiful thing. Now let's go to 
James 1 for a moment. We've just got a couple more of these. I know they're not directly related, but, but the theme of Leviticus 25 runs very strongly behind all of these things because that was the system God instituted that would create a prosperous society. James 1, verse 25. Whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, he looks and acts religious, seems to be that way, and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. Now, he's raising a physical thing to a spiritual level here. You were not to charge interest or take advantage of a brother and make him a slave. And yet with our tongues, we can do the very same thing, can't we? Sometimes the tongue can be the sharpest sword of all. You can hurt somebody with your tongue more than any other way. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. All right, what is one of the elements here of the law of liberty? Take care of the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Isn't that what the Jubilee was designed to do as a physical law of the land? Well, that's a good place to stop. I've got, I want to get into some more elements. Well, let's do one more. I, I wanted to get all of these. Second Peter 2. Verse 16. All right. This is talking about Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, what does God tell us? Don't misuse the laborer. Don't be unrighteous in what you do. And take advantage of people. And he said that very much in the Jubilee instruction. But was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. So taking the wages of unrighteousness is something that God takes very seriously, and it could cost you eternal life. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they are lured through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. People will try to take you back and say, well, you can sin, but it doesn't hurt because you're automatically forgiven. No, not so. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Wasn't it worse with Israel, who agreed with King Zedekiah to proclaim a year of liberty, and then took it away? What did God do? He took them into captivity as a result. Now, we'll get into the mechanics of this, God willing, tomorrow. I wanted to lay a background for it. I think that this is a very, very important subject, and I think it's something we need to deeply consider and look into even more, and I think that we can probably proclaim uh, when the next Jubilee will be. I'm not going there today, but I want to get into a little more of how the economic system that was designed to stabilize 
a country and its economy through the Jubilee system tomorrow. So I, we, have, we have a lot to consider and learn here, and uh, you might read some of it and, and, uh, and get into it yourself, get in, into your thoughts and your prayers, because I, when we get done with this, I think there's something here that we probably need to do, and I'd like you to be praying about it ahead of time. Uh, so that we might understand and see what God would have us do, how He would want us to do it, and what the answers to this perplexing question have have been. Is it just something that we ought to just, well, okay, I've used that piece of property for six years, I'll let it rest a year. Where is not farming for a year and receiving God's blessing for three years? What has held us back? Let me give you one more to think about. Go to Malachi 3. This is one. Yeah, I think we need to go ahead and go here. This is one that people have kind of tried and they said it didn't work and so on and so forth. But let's understand it in the context of what we've been discussing today and see if there might be something a little more to it than what we have always thought and considered. Malachi 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the eternal of hosts. Now that establishes the timing of the context here. This is talking about when God sends his messenger at the end, and how Christ, whom we seek, will suddenly come to his church. It says in a day, he'll return blessing. He'll turn his face back to us instead of away from us. A lot of scriptures we've read, I won't go to them now. But that establishes the context of Malachi 3, the very end time, okay? So what follows here is talking about now. No time else, it's now. It's a prophecy of the Old Testament for the end time today. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears? So this is right at the end of this age. He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, that's the church today, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. It says in Isaiah 54, their righteousness will be of me. He will come to his church, his people. He will refine us, and we will offer an offering not just out of our heart or our desire or whatever we might humanly do, but an offering in true righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the eternal, as in the days of old, as in former years. Now he said he used to be happy with the offerings and the sacrifices of his people, and their songs went up as a pleasant odor to him. There are scriptures that say that. Then it says, in places in Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, that he got to the place he couldn't stand to hear us sing. He couldn't stand our feast days. He couldn't stand the way we approached Him. Those scriptures are very clear. We've read a lot of those. And how He would spew us out and scatter us. So, there's a time coming at the end when 
He will be again be pleased with us. Maybe that's becoming a theme for this feast already. God becoming pleased with us. I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and the turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Eternal of hosts. Now, if that doesn't sound like the Jubilee year, what does it sound like? Don't oppress the servant. Don't make him a slave. Don't take usury. Charge an interest, so on. Be sure you take care of people. So it's those sins against the Ten Commandments or some of the first mentioned, but then it talks about the relationship between the rich and the poor and those who are in a position to take advantage of others. For I am the Eternal, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed, or we might say not yet consumed, because of our sins. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from my ordinances. What ordinances? Those ordinances that prevented us from taking advantage of the poor and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow. He is referring to here, I submit to you, the laws of land Sabbath and Jubilee and every ordinance that was connected to that that protected the poor and the weak and the foolish even. And we'll see that here in a moment. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal of hosts. But you said, what will we do? Wherein shall we return? Well, what are you talking about, is the inference here. Now, what does he give us an answer? Did he say, quit doing this, this, or that? What did he say specifically? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. Now we're going to see tomorrow, God willing, a system a financial system that is connected to the Jubilee that he's referring to right here. You've done this in tithes and in offerings. Both, not one. Some people say, well, we'll just give offerings. No, it says both, doesn't it? And there's more than one tithe. There's a specific purpose for those tithes, and they are all connected to the Jubilee system. Now, that to me is amazing, that we've read Malachi 3 all these years, and we have missed the connection between what he's saying here, and oppressing the weak and the poor, and the tithes and offerings, whereby God says we've robbed him, because we have not been keeping the system he set up in the way that he intended it, and our nation is falling apart and going into captivity as a result of it, and we are going to suffer the same consequences if we do not do something about it. That's what he's saying right here to the end-time church. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, says the Eternal of hosts, 
if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall be no room enough to receive it. What kind of blessing is three times a crop in one year? It's almost more than you can handle. How do you can it all? How do you dry it all? How do you smoke it all? Three years worth in one year? Have we been missing something? And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Eternal of hosts. And all peoples will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome people or land, says the Eternal. Your words have been stout against me, says the Eternal, yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? And some have said, it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. People have said, I tithe. I didn't get anything out of it. Maybe we were missing a whole system that God set up, and he was about to destroy the nation because we have reneged on his ordinance, or ordinances about jubilee, land sabbaths, and as we shall see, the tithes that are connected to them. And that may be a major key in causing God's face to turn back to us because it's about the end time church. And it is the one thing that he points out above everything else that we're doing wrong in our nation that would reverse our fortunes, that would change the way things are. Now, if something is listed by God to he who is about to come suddenly to his temple that is very, very important to him, and holds the key to blessing in it, should we not give it some pretty serious consideration? We'll continue from there.